Happy Lord's Day, Bethany Baptist Church. Um, Today we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 to 40. Um, I'll be preaching on uh, the last four verses of this passage, but we'll read uh, the entirety of Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as, it, as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now verse 37. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you. We praise Jesus who came as the humble king, mounted on a donkey, on the road to save us. You are worthy to receive all our praise. Help us to see how necessary it is for us to give due praise to the one who is ultimately worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were a soccer fan uh, back in 2010, you probably watched the FIFA World Cup played in South Africa. And while you might not remember all the details about the tournament, you might remember something called the Vuvuzela. A Vuvuzela is a plastic horn used by fans in South Africa that makes a kind of an annoying buzzing noise, and it's really loud. So it's not a large instrument, but it has a big sound. So imagine tens of thousands of fans with these Vuvuzelas, blowing on their horns to rally their teams to victory. As the pressure and intensity of the game grew, so would the volume of the crowds blowing on these plastic horns. It would get so loud in these stadiums that the broadcasters were sometimes completely drowned out by their noise, and the World Cup organizers ended up banning them at future tournaments. Making noise, and even extremely loud noises, seems to come natural when we're cheering or rooting for a favorite team. And it's equally true when we're caught up in celebrating a really momentous occasion. And this is the picture that we have as Jesus enters Jerusalem on the donkey. So why a Palm Sunday text in August? No, next week is not Easter, although with all the irregularity of this year, it wouldn't be the craziest thing if you told me that next week was Easter. 
But the point is that there is more in this text than just its place in history. The passage we're looking at today, it gets at the core, some of the core questions of Christian life, or any life for that matter. When we're confronted with the person and the testimony of Jesus Christ, there's a necessary response. And so what will it be? This passage is probably familiar to you because it's the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he heads into his final week of earthly ministry, ultimately culminating at the cross. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem this day was not spontaneous, it wasn't unplanned, and from long ago he had actually set his face to go to Jerusalem. Like it says in Luke chapter 9, 51, when the days were coming, clo- coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And indeed, God the Father had planned for his son to make this journey to Calvary from before the foundations of the world. One of the advantages of studying uh, passages in the Gospels is that we gain more perspective and insight by uh, being able to look at the same account from the other Gospel accounts. So since each Gospel was written by a different human author, uh, we don't always find the same details or the same accounts of historical events or of Jesus' teachings. But in this case, we have four different perspectives um, of this momentous event of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So I'll try to bring in some of those angles as we work through these verses. We're focusing on four verses today, uh, 37 to 40 of Luke 19. So at this point, all the preparations for getting the donkey ready for Jesus have been completed. The people have spread their clothes and palm branches on the road as Jesus begins to ride into the city. And then as he comes down the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, There's cheers, loud voices, and praising and welcomes um, as he enters the town. So in these four verses, I want to give four reasons. One is actually a condition for why praise is proper and necessary when we encounter Jesus. So the main goal I'll present from the text is this. Make a joyful noise to Jesus because one, He has done great things. Two, because he's the promised Messiah. Three, even though his enemies oppose him. And four, because his worth requires it. And I'll repeat that one more time. So make a joyful noise to Jesus because he has done great things. Because he is the promised Messiah. Even though his enemies oppose him. And because his worth requires it. All right, so we'll start with verse 37, and we'll be looking at because he has done great things. 37, I'll read it again. It says, Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud noise for all the miracles they had seen. So in Luke 19.37, we see Jesus making his descent down the Mount of Olives on the final leg into the city. And for him, We all know that this was the beginning of the end, or at least the end of his earthly life. And Jesus, he was fully aware of it. He knows what the week ahead of him holds. And we get a glimpse of his brewing grief inside of him as he rides in, even as the crowds cheer him on. In Luke 19, 42, just a few verses after our passage, it says that as he approached 
and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. A whole crowd of disciples is cheering and praising him as he rides past them on his donkey. It says in Matthew, Mark, and John's accounts that the crowd had cut palm branches and spread them on the road as he entered as an act of honor and deference for him. And this is where we get the title of Palm Sunday from because they were using palm branches as this act of, of honor to him for Jesus. They praised and they shouted with loud and joyful voices at the sight of Jesus coming in, even calling out to him as the promised Messiah, the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the one sent by God. Luke says that they were praising him for all the miracles that they had seen. So what had these people seen that made them so excited to witness Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem this day? Well, starting from the time that Jesus had left Galilee in the northern part of Israel to head south towards Jerusalem, they had witnessed several miracles. Um, they saw the healing of a disabled woman in a synagogue in Luke 13. They saw the healing of a swollen man in a Pharisee's house, Luke 14. Ten lepers being healed from their disease in Luke 17, and even a blind man gaining his sight in Luke chapter 18. And in addition to all this, in John chapter 12, verse 17, it tells us that this same crowd had witnessed one of Jesus' greatest demonstrations of power, which is when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he had already been dead for four days, uh, being laid in the tomb. And now they were seeing the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. On this day, Jesus met, Jesus met with cheers and loud voices from the crowds praising and welcoming him into Jerusalem. Over the next five days, Jesus would see the excited cries of Palm Sunday give way to shouts of rejection as the religious leaders seek to entrap him and accuse him of blasphemy against God. And here at the base of the Mount of Olives is the same spot where he'll be found praying several nights later in the week in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's found by an angry mob seeking to arrest him. And so we've, seen, we've sung these lines together in our gatherings. See him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man, holding up a heavy cross. See him walking in Jerusalem on the road to save us. On this side of the cross, we have so much more reason to praise him since we have the witness of his greatest work, his greatest miracle on the cross. Little did the crowds know they were just one week away from seeing Jesus the Messiah accomplish salvation by dying on their behalf. The following Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday, would be the most momentous and the greatest day in all of human history. Do you praise Jesus not for just raising Lazarus as the crowds had seen or working 
miracles of healing, but for his resurrection from the dead that secured your future resurrection as well. Listen to the psalmist proclaim his praise in Psalm 145, verses 5 and 7. He says, I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The crowds praised Jesus based on the wonders they'd seen. He had healed the disabled, he had healed the sick, even raised a man from death to life. And now he was on his way to complete the final and greatest work that he had been sent to do by God himself. As they look back on Jesus' public ministry, they find reason to praise him because they have witnessed his works. And if you're a Christian, when you look back on your own story, you can say that you've witnessed the miracle of your new birth in him. So we give praise, we make a joyful noise to Jesus because he has done great things. And next, we give praise to Jesus because he's the promised Messiah. Because he's the promised Messiah. Let's look at verse 38. And this is what the crowds are shouting as Jesus rides by. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. In Matthew, the corresponding verse in Matthew 21 verse 9 begins, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So though Luke 19 does not include that phrase, Hosanna, the other gospel accounts begin with the crowds shouting Hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase meaning, save, please, save, O Lord. Having witnessed Jesus' power to perform wonder after wonder, the people are now calling out to the one who would be the apparent savior of their people. Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. These are the words of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And this is where we find the one place in the Old Testament where we, we see the, the phrase Hosanna um, in the original Hebrew. The author of the Psalm is not named, uh, but King David would be a good guess based on uh, the language of Psalm 118 and the, the, experiences, the experiences that he would face um, as a king. This is what we would call a messianic psalm, uh, one that points forward to a future promised Messiah or an anointed one who would apparently come to deliver his people. So as the people shout Hosanna to Jesus, they're acknowledging Jesus as the answer to their cries, Lord, save us. He's the expected king who comes in the name of the Lord, according to the psalm. And then they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven, which echoes the heavenly host announcing the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.14. The crowd seem to be announcing the arrival of their long-awaited Messiah as he comes to accomplish his work of salvation fully and finally. In total, they're exclaiming, we need someone to save us, and then here is our king. So with the arrival of the promised king comes the establishment of his rule of peace. They're expecting Jesus to bring peace, but what, what kind of peace? 
So despite their attribution of this messianic text to Jesus, the crowds were still seeking an imminent worldly peace to come in the form of political liberation from the Roman oppressors for the establishment of an earthly Jewish kingdom through the Davidic line. And as the religious leaders seek to put an end to Jesus during this week in Jerusalem, the people soon come to realize that the type of deliverance that they're seeking will not come from Jesus. <clears throat> Ironically, Jesus lived during a period of history called uh, the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, said to be one of the longest uh, periods of continuous peace in world history. From about 27 BC to 180 AD, uh, there was a period of about 200 years of unbroken peace and stability within the Roman Empire. The idea of peace, though, was, was relative, uh, since the Jewish people lived under the heavy hand of Roman rule, and they attempted to throw off their oppressors. So Jesus comes to bring true peace, not through political conquest, but through divine reconciliation. Even though the crowds may have wanted and even expected Jesus to be the savior who would deliver them from their oppressors in Rome, Jesus came to bring a lasting peace, and not through his life, but through his death. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27, as he tells his disciples that he's going to the Father, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. And I think this is what the reference to peace in heaven might be referring to, that it would be a transcendent peace above and beyond temporal, earthly harmony and extend to a divine peace between God and man. On this side of the cross, we can look at verses like Romans 5.8, where it says, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And praise Jesus for bringing peace through his death. So as much as we might look for peace in this world to comfort and reassure us, true and lasting peace comes only through knowing Jesus, the promised Messiah. So if you're not a Christian, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have this peace? If you don't, then hear what the Bible says about how you can know this lasting peace. God our Father created us, you and me and every human being, in his image to reflect him and to enjoy fellowship with him forever. But that harmonious relationship between creator and the created was broken when man sinned against God by disobeying and putting his will over and against God's. The consequence of sin is broken fellowship with God. And, and since God is just, he must punish sin with eternal punishment or judgment in hell. But it says in Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy because of, the, of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. The way that Jesus brings wholeness back to that broken relationship with God is that he died on the cross to take the penalty of sin upon himself. So a week after Jesus rides into Jerusalem 
to the loud cheers of the crowds, the scene would look much different. The long-awaited one who comes in the name of the Lord would be nailed to a cross, wearing a crown of thorns, with an inscription on the crucifix reading, King of the Jews, to identify him. We took, he, or he took God's wrath for us. And he rose from the dead upon dying for the sins of the world, so he's triumphed over death. So if you lack true peace, if, you have en- if there's enmity between you and God, put your trust in Jesus today. You'll be saved unto eternal life. You can talk to a pastor or any member of our church um, to, to answer questions or to learn more. Of course, in today's climate, there's plenty of barriers to belief, including voices that seek to silence adoration and praise of Jesus, people who deny that Jesus is not who we claim to be. Praise Jesus because here in the Bible, we have God's revelation of who Jesus is, and we have witnessed his works in the pages of Scripture. Make a joyful noise to Jesus because he is the promised Messiah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now let's look at verse 39 to see that we ought to praise Jesus even though his enemies oppose him. So even though his enemies oppose him. Verse 39. So verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this is in response to their hearing the crowds shouting and praising Jesus. And so here's where Luke's account is unique from the other gospel accounts. This is the only account in the gospels that includes these two short verses, 39 and 40, uh, which is an exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus. So even as the crowds enthusiastically cheer Jesus and welcome him into the holy city, the, the religious leaders are there on the sidelines feeling the threat of this Messiah who has won the hearts of his followers and claims to be equal with God. The Pharisees, being familiar with Old Testament prophecy, knew full well what it meant for these people to be uh, using these prophetic words of Psalm 118 and calling Jesus the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it further substantiated their fears that the people were giving credence to Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, and they were not about to just stand by. So they confront, not the chanting crowds, but they confront Jesus directly. And they tell him to rebuke the disciples for praising him. They're saying, Jesus, you're the problem, not them. And so don't miss the audacity of their demand as if they're saying, hey, they actually think you're the savior to come. Tell them you're not. The other, disciple, or sorry, the other gospel accounts help us to fill out what, what's, what's going on here. You get a sense of the commotion and the energy of the scene from Matthew's account in Matthew 21, starting in verse 10. And it says, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So not everyone has a perfect picture-perfect sense of who this Jesus is, but the Pharisees want to be sure that they gain control over the situation by getting Jesus himself to deny his kingship. As students of scripture, the Pharisees should have known that their rejection of Jesus' kingship was fulfilling another part 
of Psalm 118. In Psalm 118.22, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus actually brings this to their attention later in Luke chapter 20 in the parable of the vineyard owner. That they were that what they're doing is rejecting the very one sent by the Father. The Pharisees felt threatened by Jesus. They held traditions and practices to show themselves moral and upright, but Jesus came undermining their religious system, showing them that even their so-called good works were acts of pride and self-righteousness to be repented of. Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, who look beautiful and polished on the outside, but inside they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus exposes that hypocrisy while he gains popularity with the people. And so it was the intent of the Pharisees to undermine Jesus' position and his authority as they see this as a time of high stakes when thousands of Jews are gathered in Jerusalem, the holy city, for the upcoming Passover festival, and tensions are extremely high between the Jews and Roman rule. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees are seen saying to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're openly frustrated and disappointed that the people are so enthusiastic about welcoming Jesus and even calling on him as the promised Messiah. And in both Matthew and Mark's accounts, we see Jesus heading straight to the temple after he enters the city. Matthew 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Rebuke your disciples. Tell these children to be quiet. The hardness of these Pharisees and the religious leaders is apparent in their repeated attempts to silence those who are praising Jesus, who are making a joyful noise to Jesus, those who are calling him the Messiah. You might call it anti-praise like the noise-canceling headphones you use to cut out competing noise. The Pharisees try to cancel the noise of the disciples and the children. So today, what we call cancel culture, it's not a new phenomenon. Even, even though today's widespread use of social media has made it so much more accessible and unwieldy, it's actually existed for thousands of years. Urban Dictionary defines cancel culture as a social attitude that facilitates the unanimous agreement amongst multiple people that someone is worthy of hate and slander due to controversial behaviors they've engaged in. In most cases, it leads to immediate outrage, mob mentality, irrational thinking, and the spread of misinformation by the people who want to capitalize on the controversy. In Jesus' case, it was the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time who were trying to criminalize Jesus on the basis of his claim to be equal with God. So the evil conspiring among the religious leaders of the time leads to Jesus being ostracized and even condemned as a criminal 
They, they, call, they called him someone who had no apparent power to save. And it rises to a climax when the shouts of blessed is he are replaced by shouts of crucify him by those who are supporting um, the, the religious leaders at the time. BBC, how do we as a church respond in a modern culture that tries to cancel Jesus? The historicity of the Bible, the validity of his claims, the narrowness and exclusivity of his teaching, and even his relevancy to us today. Every age of history has had its detractors, and Jesus' day was no exception. One way for us to praise Jesus confidently as a church in this climate is to be ready with reasons. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Although our Sunday school classes are on hold for now, we have an ongoing seminar on apologetics that is designed to help, help us in making that defense when others would deny. Another way the church responds to an anti-Jesus culture is simply by living life in light of the gospel, an outflow of the gospel. Older men be self-controlled and respectable and sensible. Older women act reverently and be wise with words, teaching the younger women to do the same. Young men be self-controlled and be an example of good works. Slaves, submit to your masters and demonstrate faithfulness. And in these ways, Paul says in Titus 2, Christians adorn the gospel. They make the teaching of God beautiful and attractive even while the surrounding culture tries to silence it. And to the children, kids, you are not excluded from participating in the chorus of praise that is rightly due to the Lord Jesus. Where does Jesus go right after he enters the city? He enters the temple where there's a crowd of children who are praising him. And others are there too, others we might not expect, the lame and the blind. The children say, Hosanna to the son of David, save us, King Jesus. So kids, you're not too young to ask Jesus to save you from your sin. You don't need to know every detail about the Bible to know that Jesus loves you and he calls you to be his child. You can also see that even adults who are much older and maybe more educated than you are, some will not praise Jesus even though he is deserving of it. So praise Jesus, he has done great things. Because he's the promised Messiah and even though his enemies oppose him. And finally, let's look at verse 40. So make a joyful noise to Jesus because his worth requires it. Because his worth requires it. And this is Jesus' response to uh, the Pharisees' demand for uh, him to rebuke the crowds for praising him. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. So probably not the type of response the Pharisees were expecting to hear. And quite honestly, I don't think I really understood this verse uh, the first few times I came across it. 
Jesus responds to the Pharisees' demand with a really profound statement. He doesn't simply turn to them and say, no, there's no need to rebuke them because they're doing what, they're need, what they should be doing. But he actually ends up turning the rebuke back on the Pharisees. Jesus validates who he is, the king. And he affirms his disciples' praise and highlights his worthiness to receive their praise. Psalm 100 opens with these lines in the ESV. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That's exactly what the crowds are doing as they behold Jesus, God's sent king, making a joyful noise. They attribute praise and worship and honor to the one who is truly worthy to receive it. And this is fitting it's good. This is right and natural. It's the natural response of creation toward its creator. Some of us might be familiar with um, the catechism question that goes, how and why did God create us? The answer, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us, male and female, in their image to join them in celebrating their goodness. And it's right that we who are created by God should live to his glory. It is right that we should live to his glory. When I was a youth leader uh, back in my college days, I trained a group of middle and high schoolers um, in song leading. And back then we used to call them the praise team. Uh, we were really good at making noise. But one thing I tried to emphasize to the youth kids before every practice or before song leading for a service was that before they were musicians or before they were song leaders they were first worshipers and back in the day of three ring binders and paper i had these words of jesus from luke 1940 printed on the cover of each of their songbooks i tell you if they the disciples were to keep silent the stones would cry out so these words of jesus are so hard-hitting because they highlight the absolute necessity of worship coming from the mouths of his created ones first, before anything else. If we, the ones who are made in God's image, refuse to praise him, then something is terribly off. Nature has become wildly dis disordered. It's so wrong for people to refuse to praise him that God says, that Jesus says, even the stones will cry out. Worship of the Lord of the heavens and the earth is demanded of us by virtue of his infinite glory. It's so necessary that if we don't do it, the rocks will do it. Jesus' worth requires it. There are two things here to understand about stones. One, they don't talk, but when they do, they speak truth. And two, they do talk in a sense, and they still speak truth. All right, so first, stones aren't supposed to talk. They're the opposite of life. They're, they just sit there, right? Habakkuk 2 is a really helpful cross-reference for this idea about these lifeless, inanimate objects suddenly getting up and talking. If you can, turn to Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. Habakkuk chapter 2, 9 to 11. This is a section where God proclaims a series of judgments on the unjust and dishonest in response to Habakkuk's prayer. So Habakkuk 2, starting in verse 9. 
It says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. Now verse 11. For the stones will cry out from the wall, and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. That's a really just interesting verse. In this case, the stones and the rafters of the house, these dead, inanimate things, they'll cry out against wealth obtained through dishonesty and injustice. Like the case in Luke 19.40, if no one speaks out for what's right, the stones will. The metaphor speaks to the utter desperation and necessity to speak out for what is true and what is right. So in English, a similar phrase that might approach this is if these walls could speak, right? Meaning that these lifeless and inanimate objects that are objective witnesses to what goes on around them, they would testify to truth if they were called upon. All right, so first was rocks don't talk. But second, stones and really all of nature do talk in a sense. Okay, so we know this from scripture that all creation declares their maker's glory. The created world is where God generally reveals his power and his majesty to all people, right? You just need to be able to look at it. Um, Isaiah 55, 12. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And they hear the, hear the opening verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So the heavens declaring God's glory, mountains and hills singing, trees clapping their hands. What does this all mean? This is no Dr. Seuss story. It's actually happening all around us. And what do these passages teach us? Well, for one, they describe nature's prominent role in general revelation. They proclaim the splendor and the majesty and the creative power of God to everyone, whether you want to acknowledge God or not. These passages also point to God's dominion over nature and all created things, including us, for which he is deserving of all worship. When it comes to praising our Creator and our Lord, we ought not be outdone by rocks and trees and skies and seas, as beautiful and majestic as they are. And though they give general revelation to the power and to the majesty of our Creator, they have no mouths. They have no capacity to know and to commune with God. And they are not included in God's salvation plan through Jesus. We've been created with mouths to proclaim, hearts and minds to know and commune with God, and most importantly, been endowed with forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father through Jesus Christ. How much more reason do we, as his image bearers, have to praise? So in recognition of this, the psalmist in Psalm 145 
makes these declarations of how every living thing ought to give praise. Verse 21, My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless His holy name forever. Or Psalm 63, verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We all live in an era of in the era of COVID-19. Today, we talk about life pre-COVID-19, like in February and before that. And sometime in the next year, Lord willing, we'll be talking about life post-COVID-19. But for now, we live in the reality of social distancing, face masks, limited business operations, and suspended gatherings. There's an article I came across back in April titled this, the, the coronavirus is forcing us to ask, what is truly essential to our life? And the article goes on about how the crisis has awakened something spiritual in us because of this forced pause, causing the big questions of life to creep back into our consciousness. The pandemic is sharpening the question for some, what is truly essential for life? An answer we can take away from this passage is that praise for the one who is ultimately praiseworthy is essential to life. So essential and so necessary that if we were not to do it, then the rocks would cry out. The question is, do you participate in this chorus of praise? If you're not a Christian, what do you give your highest praise to? What is ultimately praiseworthy to you? What has living the past several months in this pandemic done to sharpen the question about what is truly essential for life? Seek the Lord while he may be found. The words of scripture presses you to seriously consider these questions for your own life and to consider how the gospel reorients our praise to the one who is truly deserving of that praise, Jesus. BBC family, our weekly Sunday morning gatherings or Zoom meetings each week includes a prayer of praise. Every time we have a time of corporate prayer or corporate singing, we're exercising our joyful responsibility of giving praise to the one who is ultimately worthy. These are all opportunities for us as a church to outdo the stones and the rocks in proclaiming praise and the truth about who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so for those of us who are feeling dry or maybe just stumbling along in your Christian walk, what are you busy doing? What are you preoccupied with? Do you realize that Jesus is worthy of your noise, your joyful noise? When you fix your eyes on Jesus, who is entirely worthy, the lesser and worthless things will begin to fade as you place your thoughts and affections 
in their proper and right place. <clears throat> so in summary, our main goal uh, from these four verses was to make a joyful noise to Jesus because he's done great things, because he's the promised Messiah, even though his enemies oppose him, and because his worth requires it. Take some time to self-assess and gauge where you make the most noise in your life. The direction of your noise might help you to see what you truly value, what, you, what do you talk about the most, what excites you the most. If you don't do this, you, you may spend a life chasing things and making a lot of noise about things that will ultimately fade at best or perhaps lure you to eternal destruction at worst. But if you do take the time to ask yourself the questions, where is my noise directed to? If you direct your praise where it is truly worthwhile, you'll discover that directing praise to the one who is truly praiseworthy is essential for life. So the song continues with this charge. Lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. Five days after his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is led out beyond the city walls and he's crucified, but he doesn't remain there. He rises three days later and now is seated on heaven's throne. Give praise to the one who is infinitely worthy to receive all praise and glory and honor. Let's pray. Father, there is no shortage of reasons for us to praise Jesus. You've shown us your kindness through power, delivered us through your Son, and you're ultimately worthy to receive all our praise. Let our joyful worship freely flow from our lips as we behold Jesus, our Messiah. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you would take a moment to um, think about a takeaway from uh, the teaching this morning, um, I think we are going to break out rooms to share uh, with maybe one or two other people. So we'll do that now. <clears throat>